Wow, that'll get you going. The joy of the Lord. Man, what a great way to think about the joy of the Lord. The Lord is good. He is good. Today we're in Genesis chapter 2 as we're in the midst of our Engage series. Genesis chapter 2 as we speak today about marriage and God's design for marriage dating back to his creation story. We think about marriage, some have said that marriage is like an adventure, like going to war. Some, someone has said, you know, my wife and I have perfect, a perfect understanding. I don't try to run her life, and I don't try to run mine either. Now, now here's, one for, here's one for the ladies now. Bigamy is having one husband too many, and so is monogamy. So there's one for the women as well. But we think about, um, you, you know, we think about and bring light to some great jokes, and there's great humor that's related uh, to one of the most uh, important institutions in all of society, uh, to marriage. But we, when we talk about marriage as a whole, it's a very, very important topic of which we need to be very serious and we need to think about as believers in Jesus Christ. How do we live out the gospel? How do we display the love of Christ, not only to our husband and to our wife, but to the unbelieving world around us. You know, we're in the midst again of this series called Engage, in which we as believers in Jesus Christ have the responsibility and the privilege to engage our culture on some of the real hot-button topics that we see in our culture these days. And when we think about one of the hottest uh, hot-button topics that we have in our culture today is same-sex marriage. But before we ever get to a a sermon about same-sex marriage and how do we speak lovingly, um, biblical truth about homosexuality, before we ever get there, we have to talk about what is God's design for marriage and how do we live that out? How can we, in our marriages in the church, how can we love our husband and our wife more like Christ, love the church, and how can we be ones who display the good news of the gospel through our marriage you know, it's no, I don't think it's any surprise, I don't think it's any coincidence that the very first temptation that we see, in fact, the next chapter, uh, after the one that we'll be walking through today, Genesis chapter 3, that we see the very first temptation of mankind wasn't just a general temptation. I don't think it's any coincidence at all that it was a gender-specific temptation related to the pinnacle, the pinnacle of God's created order, that it was related to the Marriage, it was related to the relationship between husband and wife. You know, and when we look at our society, when we look at the world around us, and we think as believers in Jesus Christ, we have to paint a picture for exactly what God intended marriage to be. We have to look and see that many of the issues that we're dealing with in our our modern culture of same-sex marriage and places, it won't stop there, it will keep going. We have to look first at It didn't start there, it didn't start there, and it will not stop there. And to what degree, even as the church, must we be willing to speak to these things, and what degree do we have to to be countercultural in how we live out our lives uh, in, in our marriages, and even if we're not married, how do we live out our lives as the man and woman that God has created us to be? Now, as we know, we walk through any of these topics uh, over the course of this engaged study, we know that anytime we look at any sort of difficult issue or something that might be a hot button issue in our culture today, um, even something that might be a hot button issue within the church, we, we know that there's a potential, even when we look at 
at issues that we face in our marriages, there's an issue that, or there's a temptation or, 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 or rather a potential that we might step on a toe or two. Now, it is not my intention to do that. And in fact, I don't, I'm not cavalier with any of the things that we'll talk about and we'll say in the course of this engaged study whatsoever. But if we are to come to the place in our churches, in our Bible studies, in any or small groups, whatever it may be, where we ignore the scripture on anything that may be controversial in our world and may even be controversial in some of our churches, then we're going to be left with a very narrow segment of what we can speak about and preach about and teach about. There's, we have to be realistic and understand the fact that the Bible in and of itself, when God speaks of certain things, uh, it may create some difficulty. But let us be open-minded and think about Scripture and think about what God has to say about these specific things. But again, the place that we find ourselves in our modern culture where now we're wrestling with the issue of same-sex marriage, and again, it won't end there, we have to be reminded that it did not start there. When we look at the sexual revolution that we see ebbing and flowing throughout society, we see, of course, it kind of came to a pinnacle in our own society, our American society in the mid-20th century. And we see certain things that led, in fact, to where we are now with the state of marriage as a whole in our culture. Birth control on demand, no-fault divorce, uh, the increasing degree of cohabitation that we see in our culture. And again, I know and I'm sensitive to the fact that many of us may know people that have dealt with or are dealing with these specific issues. Some of you may have dealt with them yourself. And we're very sensitive to that fact and we're not cavalier about speaking about these things. But of course, we have to look clearly at culture through the lens of Scripture. You know, we think about birth control on demand that, that, uh, that began to rise through uh, the sexual revolution of the 20th century. In a way, amongst other uh, motivations, was a way to control social pathologies. Remember a couple of weeks ago when we talked about human dignity and the sanctity of human life, we talked about Margaret Sanger, who, in, uh, who is the, the founder of what we now see. It's morphed into what we see now as Planned Parenthood. Uh, many of those that kind of came from her same school of thought were big into what we remember we talked about a thought process of eugenics. Eugenics, which basically at its root is more of the fit, less of the unfit. And that same sort of thought process is what was fueling, at least in some circles, uh, birth control on demand. And in so doing, there was at least one loss of a natural check, which was potential of pregnancy in sexual relationships outside of marriage. Also, no-fault divorce. We know we see, uh, we see even Jesus Christ dealt with this in his day, in which the Pharisees had, had come to the point uh, in their culture where they were easily dismissing their wives for whatever it may be and whichever way the wind blew. And he said, outside of adultery, and then we see uh, later confirmed with Paul... Uh, desertion by an unbeliever but yet we see even in Jesus's culture there was just kind of this no fault easy divorce of which Jesus dealt with even in his day we see this idea of marriage turning from a covenant a covenant between two people before their God into a contract and it's left in its wake uh, a number of problems including just a pandemic an absolute pandemic of abandoned children 
we know it's not directly related to, but uh, we know that in the Old Testament, the New Testament, throughout the testimony of Scripture, we know that one of the things that we're called to do as believers in Jesus Christ, and we're called to do as believers in the Lord, is to care for orphans and widows. Now, we know technically, uh, technically left in its wake are not actual orphans and widows in the strictest sense, but in the sense that they're left without uh, one parent or the other. It's something that we have to be ready to care for as the church and come alongside to step in and introduce the one to whom he calls himself in Scripture. God calls himself the father to the fatherless. Cohabitation as well, living together before one is married, has quadrupled in the last 30 years. It's unstable in the fact that it, it, it just kind of breeds low commitment. Even New York Times, by no means a bastion of biblical thought, said that when you see some of the cohabitative relationships, when we think about the children in some of those relationships because of uh, the propensity for those relationships to fall apart, you see an incredible amount of poverty, low graduation rates, arrests, emotional and behavioral problems. This was a study by the New York Times. But when Russell Moore, the author of the book and the study of which is our companion to this sermon series that we're walking through on Sunday evening, he says when we look at the church, oftentimes he says we are as, too often we are as countercultural as we want to be. And he says that's not nearly enough to turn our churches, much less the world, upside down. We have to be willing to be lovingly Counter-cultural. We live in a world in which those that don't know Christ as their Savior, they do not know God as their, as their Father. They are groping and they are looking in life for anything to, to stem the pain in their life and search for meaning in life. And we have to be ones that are lovingly countercultural and say, we know we have the answer to these issues you're dealing with. And we have the answer to the greatest issue in life which is salvation, forgiveness through the Lord Jesus Christ. So we look here at our focal passage today, Genesis chapter 2, starting in verse 18. It says this, And the Lord said, the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. Out of the ground the Lord formed every beast of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. And whatever Adam called each living creature, that was its name. So Adam gave names to all the cattle, to the birds of the air, to the beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper comparable to him. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam. And he slept and he took one of his ribs and he closed up the flesh in its place. And then the rib which the Lord God had taken from man, he made into a woman. And he said, he brought, the, brought her to the man and he said, This is now bone of my bones, Adam says this, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of a man. Therefore the man shall leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. You know, when we think about the main idea of this passage, we see it right off the bat in verse 18. And the question itself or the statement itself, it is not good that man should be alone. 
And so when we think about, if you will, our main idea of our passage, it's very simply in question form, that very thing. Why is it not good for man to be alone? Now we know that this not only speaks to the individual, but this also speaks declaratively to the entire relationship of mankind, of humanity, to the degree that man and woman, they reflect the very nature of God. Now we know, uh, as far as another disclaimer, we know that there are many in our midst, we know that there are many that we know uh, that, that enjoy the wonderful gift of singleness. Paul himself says in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, he calls it a gift, a gift for many other reasons, uh, but probably chiefly which is that we have undivided devotion to God and to the gospel. So if we're going to believe all of scripture, as we do, we have to believe that, that the Holy Spirit imbued Paul with those very words. He gave him those very words. And know that's the Holy Spirit of God speaking. That we know that those whom God has called to be single, that is a gift. And in so doing, we can have undivided devotion unto God. But even whether we look at singleness or married life, when we look specifically at married life, or we just look at the relationship between, in general, man and woman. We see a couple of things. Why is it not good for man to be alone? We need a helper. We need a helper, number one. Very simply, we need a helper. Now, when we say, why is it not good for man to be alone? We speak there not only in its original context of man specifically, Adam, the male, but also mankind. Why is it not good for us to be alone? We need a helper. Verse 18 says this, and the Lord said, it's not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. You know, most of those that would adhere to the inerrancy of scripture, the infallibility of scripture, that this isn't just a book that contains the words of God, but that this is the word of God, most of us would adhere to what we call uh, a, the complementary nature of man and woman. Uh, if you say it in a long theological word, it would be complementarianism. So try to spell that out, see if you can do it three times. But it is the idea that man and woman are unique, are, are equal in dignity, but unique and different in their roles. They're equal in dignity in that they both bear the image of God, but that they are, equal, that they are different and unique in their roles. Sometimes even in our modern culture, when we read that very first phrase or that second phrase that we see in verse 18 of a helper comparable sometimes the the hair will stand up on the back of people's necks and say what do you mean a helper as speaking to a woman almost a, a helper like someone that's just kind of behind taking notes almost like some sort of an entourage absolutely not when we see that word used in the old testament helper is a word of dignity god applies it to himself several times especially related to helping with the enemies of Israel. In fact, we see in one of the references, he's known as a helper and a shield. And so it's a great term of dignity. But really what it does is it, shed light, it sheds light upon our culture in which we've seen this sort of idea of, of movements in our culture that want to degrade uh, what we see as a biblical truth and we see a truth in Scripture and we see uh, movements in our culture that want to try to, 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 to move to an egalitarian mindset. And to say that to have a complementary mindset that uh, man and woman are equal in their dignity but have different roles, that is damaging and it's degrading to women. 
But can we really say when we look out upon the last century and we uh, look at the liberation movements of the last century, can we really say that our society and our world is actually a safer place now for women and their children? And I think also when we see the revulsion of this and we see the hair standing up on the necks of those out there when we look at these passages of complementary nature that we see in Scripture, I think oftentimes the degree of revulsion in society is directly related to the degree, men out there, to the degree of our abdication as husbands of the responsibility to love our wives sacrificially the way that Christ loved the church. We'll return in Ephesians, at the end of this sermon to Ephesians chapter 5 and we'll take a look at uh, Ephesians chapter 5 in, in, in brevity. But there's no doubt in my mind the revulsion to this idea that we see clearly in Scripture of a complementary nature of man and woman, in, in men and women in our culture, the revulsion to that is a directly related to the degree that we as men have abdicated. We have abdicated our responsibility and our call and our charge to love our wives the way that Christ loved the church. How did Christ love the church? He sacrificed everything he had for the church. He died on the cross. When we think about that horrible physical death, it just, uh, it just scratches the surface of how, how horrible that, 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 uh, that moment really was as we think about the entire sin of the world heaped upon the shoulders of Jesus Christ. He sacrificed all that he had. So we see this. We, we also, also see not only that idea of that complementary nature, but digging into it further, that equal dignity in different roles. It's the idea that we're not only complementary, but we complete one another. We complete the picture and the union of who Christ is. We, we, we complete that picture of the very idea and dignity of God. We think about that movie, Jerry Maguire, where he says, you complete me. Do you remember that? We didn't know that Tom Cruise and Jerry Maguire was such a great theologian, but he said, you complete me. You remember that famous line from that movie? But this is the idea, not only are we complementary, but we complete one another. When we look at verses 22 through 23, we see this. Then the rib which the Lord God had taken from the man, he brought into woman. He made into woman, he brought her to the man. And Adam said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Rib there literally can be translated as side as well. It's not some sort of frivolous piece of the man. Uh, it's not, nor is it, is it a way that speaks to anything more than equal dignity. Imagine if there was a piece of the head, it could be said that, that woman has dominance over man. If it was taken a, a piece of the foot, it could be said that men have dominance over women. But it's of the side, speaking again to that equal dignity, yet different roles. Nor was it a frivolous piece. God didn't say, I'm drawing out of you, Adam, your wisdom tooth or your appendix. But it was of his side. Equal dignity. Different roles. How do we as men and women in our church, how do we, in the church as a whole, how do we disciple, how do we teach our young men to, and, and young women to live and be all that they can be and paint the picture of, of God's goodness in our society? Men, whether we be fathers or just men of the church, we need to disciple our young men out of this pagan idea of hyper-masculinity. This hyper-masculinity that deifies our own appetites, 
and it hurts women and children. You see, unfortunately, the society that we live in, we are raising young men in this society that, that seems to give them one of two pictures. Either it's the, it's the, the wimpy, milk-toast, idiotic dad on, the, the, on, on some of the sitcoms, the guy that's being picked on and the guy that seems like he's wimpy and he's milk-toast and he's an idiot, or it's the hyper-masculine picture of someone, some sort of almost like roided-up MMA fighter. It's one of those two things. That's the picture that we paint, and men, we have to disciple our young men, our boys, to say that we have to picture and we have to model the love of Christ, the wisdom of the Lord. Women, we have to disciple our young ladies away from seeing their worth as this society keeps painting a picture of seeing their worth in their sexual attractiveness and their availability to men. And trust me, if we are going to be a church with a broken heart for the world, just like Jesus had, where our eyes are open, they look out, and we are broken for the world around us, we are going to have uh, opportunity upon opportunity for deep, deep ministry to those on both sides of those camps that desperately are hurting and desperately need the love of God. They need to see that as men, their worth is not in some sort of hyper-masculinity. And our, our women and young ladies that we have opportunity to reach out to and disciple need to see that their worth is not found in their sexual attractiveness. So again, we not only see that, but we see this paradigm for marriage. Verse 24, as we skip down to the end of the passage and we'll come back to the middle, it says this. Therefore, a man must leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife. And they shall become one flesh. We see this paradigm for marriage of leaving what we have known and clinging to what is ahead. Our new priority becomes our husband and our, or our wife. And it shows this picture that again, we are dependent upon one another. Dependent upon one another. So not only when we think about why is it not good for man to be alone, we need a helper with us, whether we think specifically in a marriage relationship or we think generally men and women together. But number two, we uniquely fulfill mankind's purpose. We uniquely fulfill mankind's purpose. When we say man's there in the point, it's mankind as we think about it. We uniquely fulfill mankind's purpose. Look at this, right here in the middle of this, almost in the midst of these two bookends of what it, the marriage relationship is to look like. We see this, this task that is, that is given again to Adam. Out of the ground the Lord formed every beast of the field, every bird of the air, brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. And we see this, that he subdued. It's his responsibility to subdue and to take care of the world in which God has created. You know, when we see this first commission... This first mission, this first commission echoes and reflects the Great Commission. The Great Commission of Matthew chapter 28, that we are to go into all the world and make disciples of all nations. When we see that picture of the first commission, we, we need and we uniquely together fulfill not only the first commission, but the Great Commission to take the gospel to all of the nations. You see, it paints a picture of the gospel when we think about Ephesians chapter 5, it's not as though Paul is searching for uh, an illustration. He uses the church to illustrate marriage. Marriage is the illustration. Marriage is the illustration of the church. And again, he says that, that Christ sacrificed, sacrificed for the church. So we are too. We are to paint this picture 
of this unique dignity, this equal dignity, different roles. And in so doing, we paint this picture together as we, as we are dependent upon one another. We cling to one another. We love and we sacrifice and we care for one another. We paint the picture of Christ and his church. And we paint the picture of the gospel. As we think about now, as we are kind of coming to the conclusion of this message, you know, the thought might run around in your mind, what, in, what do we do now? What do I do? What do we do now? Let me tell you, if you are out here today and you are either struggling in your marriage or you know someone who is, please be willing, please be willing to go and speak to another believer, a mature believer in Jesus Christ. Be willing to go and speak to them about the difficulty. Be open. Be willing to have that authentic relationship. Be willing to seek counseling, good biblical counseling, where they counsel from Scripture. They counsel with Scripture in the forefront. Also, we must be willing, as we think about bearing burdens of those in our neighborhoods, in our communities, those that the Lord may bless us with in our church, we must be willing as uh, as lay people in our church, be willing to counsel from Scripture as well. To the degree that, that it is offered training and being able to counsel from Scripture, be willing, be willing to be able to disciple and counsel, be willing to be trained to do that very thing. And so as a church, as a church, what do we do now? We have to open our eyes to the pain around us. We know there are people all around us that are dealing with great difficulty in their marriages, their marriage relationships. We have to be willing to open our eyes, not only to those within the church, but also those that we know at our places of work, our friends, our neighbors, our family members. We have to be like Christ, those with open eyes to the pain around us. And we have to as a church, when we think about that difficulty, we have to take heart. We have to take heart. We can take heart, we do not be afraid, because we know we have the very answer of Jesus Christ. Lord God, as we come now to your, as we come now to this time of prayer, Lord, we think about your example of, that we see in Scripture, of men and women, whether in marriage relationships or just arm in arm, as we take the gospel into the world, God, that we must be dependent upon one another, Realize that together we paint the picture of, of your goodness and your grace and your character and your wisdom. God, that we reflect, as we spoke about a couple of weeks ago, we reflect the very image of Jesus Christ, the very image of God, your image. God, as we think about our relationships, Lord God, may we be willing to reflect and we, may we, we, we be willing to humble ourselves Whatever the issue is that we face in our particular marriages, may we be willing to humble ourselves and, Lord, to be sacrificial towards our husband and our wife. And whatever our relationships are, if even we don't find ourselves in a married relationship right now, may we be willing to, to, to serve one another just as Christ served the church and to sacrifice for those around us. And, God, may we as we look on many of these issues that we'll deal with in the next several weeks, that we must engage our culture. May we engage our culture with the same eyes that Jesus Christ had. May our eyes be open to the brokenness and the pain and the hurt around us. 
And may we be willing to, Lord, speak directly and lovingly from your truth, giving answers, not of ourselves, but eternal, truthful answers straight from your wisdom. God, may our hearts be broken. May our hearts be broken for those around us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.